So Jay, it's always interesting to see what does and doesn't change about X-Men from universe to universe. Oh man, that is one of my favorite things about the whole concept of the multiverse. All those weird what-ifs and might-have-beens. I like how many characters sort of end up versions of each other. I know! Like, there are all these universes where Magneto is basically Xavier. And the one where Rogue is Magneto. And the one where Cyclops is Captain America. And the one where- wait, Cyclops is Captain America? Uh, yeah, on Earth 81-122. How does that work out? He gets killed by Sentinels. Ouch. Multiverse, though. So, God, what else? Um, oh, there's the one where Rogue and Mystique are kind of the same person? That sounds a little awkward. It, it's kind of awkward, but it's not as awkward as the one where Rogue is... Destiny? Thor. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 172 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the beginning of the end of an era, which I kind of feel like that's where we've been for a while. I mean, we've been ending the 80s for many, many episodes now, but this and the next are kind of the big one. Yeah, it's been a really slow burn, and I feel like we're kind of at the final conflagration at this point. Pretty much, yeah. But before we get to that, I would be remiss if I did not address the Asgardian elephant in the room. Thor Ragnarok came out. Okay, okay, Miles, so last weekend I was at Vegas Valley Comic Book Fest. I have not seen Thor Ragnarok yet, I'm going to see it this week, and if you spoil it for me, I will come to Portland and destroy you. Okay, well, uh, nobody wants that, so all I'll say was... It was really, 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 really fun. It was kind of weird for a Thor movie, but I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm okay with uh, overlooking the parts I wasn't so sure about for the parts I was very, very sure about. Okay, actually, I have one question. And Matt, maybe you can just beep this out for the listeners so that they, they don't get this spoiled. So just, just bleep out the next bit. Do they do skirt? Sort of. They, uh, they do it as more of an than an and that may That's probably fun. for the best. Don't tell me more. But, listeners, if you've seen Thor Ragnarok, or if you don't care about spoilers, um, I was actually on a podcast called Panel on Panels, and I reviewed it. So you can hear lots and lots about what I think about it. It was, like, a really long episode, so basically everything I think about it. When you say review, do you basically mean just, like, got really enthusiastic and yelled? I mean, there was certainly a sizable component of the episode that was enthusiastic yelling. I feel okay about that. I feel like that seems like a really appropriate response to the movie that I at least am expecting based on the promotional materials. Yes, uh, the promotional materials were relatively accurate, I think. Oh, nice. Before we spoil that, we should probably get back to the X-Men, because we have been building up to the Muir Islands saga for, I feel like, as long as it's been Inferno. I mean, probably for a, a little under 50 issues. I mean, Claremont started feeding us little hints that the Shadow King, Xavier's occasional psychic nemesis from back in the day, was going to be this era's big bad for a long, long time. And this is where it all comes to a head. Sort of. Because here's the thing. Chris Claremont, the father of the modern X-Men, the writer of that franchise for 17 years in a row, and then someone who returned to it again and again— yeah, this is one of the storylines where he disappears. Now, we're not going to do our big Claremont is gone, let's talk about what that means uh, speech yet, because we still have some uh, X-Men Volume 2 issues that he's going to write, but this is kind of it. So, I like to imagine, I know this isn't true, but I have I have headcanons that involve um, Claremont when he disappears mid-issue faking his own death. That seems pretty likely and reasonable, yeah. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just sort of assume that that's real, we can go with that. 
Now, before we dive in, I do want to talk a little bit about how we're going to cover this story, because the Muir Island saga, and yes, that is islands, not isle, I don't know why they changed it, is five parts. Now, normally, that's about what we'd cover in one episode, but you may have noticed that this is, in fact, a saga, and if there's something that's consistent to our coverage of sagas, it's that they tend to be two-parters, at least. It's true. Now, the reason we're doing that this time is that we want to add a little bit of space to discuss the context of Chris Claremont leaving and what the story was going to be and what it ended up as, and in next episode, sort of a retrospective of this entire era, because this ends the 80s more than anything else did. Also, and I want to apologize in advance for this, we're going to end up talking about Charles Xavier's crotch again, and I'm really, really sorry. It was unavoidable. Should we just retitle the podcast at this point? No. Jane Miles explained Charles Xavier's crotch. No, because hopefully this is going to be the last time. This kind of brings it full circle. Charles Xavier's crotch. Full circle. Well, that's sort of wedge-shaped. <laughs> Charles Xavier's crotch. Full wedge-shape. There we go. That's our new podcast name. Perfect. It'll be yep. SEO-optimized. It'll be great. Well, anyway, let's talk a little bit about what happened here, because like we mentioned, Chris Claremont... This was going to be one of his big climaxes story-wise, and he cuts out about halfway through. So we found a couple of cool sources. One of them was Brian Cronin's Comic Book Legends Revealed column on Comic Book Resources. The other is the X-Men Nerds Secrets Behind the X-Men blog. Those are both sources that we've cited before. I highly recommend checking them out. Now, as we're going through the Muir Island saga, what we're coming right up on is the relaunch of X-Men. Yeah, this was intended to be the storyline that would lead into the launch of X-Men Volume 2 Number 1, the new X-Factor written by Peter David, New Mutants Becoming X-Force, all that stuff. Now, the original plan was for Chris Claremont to continue to write Uncanny X-Men and also to write X-Men without adjectives, with Jim Lee co-plotting and drawing on X-Men. However, Lee wanted more control, and while sources vary as to whether it was deliberate or not, at the same time he was lobbying for that, he was turning in pages late enough that all Claremont really had time to do was dialogue. There, were, there wasn't really time for story notes, so Lee was de facto plotting. Exactly. And that was what editor Bob Harris eventually said was going to happen. Claremont was just going to be scripting. He wasn't going to be plotting. And so once this all became clear, Claremont turned in the script for X-Men Volume 2, number 1 through 3, and he quit. And faked his own death. And faked his own death. And that's why he drops out of the Muir Island saga partway through, because I guess he was writing that at the same time. So it's a little weird, and certainly what was going to happen and what ends up happening are very different things. This is a really interesting arc to look at tr as a transitional era, because it really, really is. As Miles mentioned, the creative teams switch up a lot. Because, I mean, over the course of, of five issues, this five-issue story, we've got three different writers. We've got Claremont, we've got Nicieza, and we've got um, Peter David coming in on X Factor. Exactly, yeah, before the whole Havoc-Polaris era that he was famous for starts. Right. Well, right before, in fact. I think it's the issue immediately before. It is, yeah. But we did find a couple of uh, quotes that kind of get across the, the atmosphere at the time, and the first one is from Chris Claremont. The problem was that Jim was just as strong-willed as I was. Jim wanted to do stuff that reminded him of the things that made him get into comics in the first place. He wanted to bring back Magneto and do the Sentinels and all that sort of stuff. My problem was that I'd already done those things, at least twice. I wanted to try and find some new stuff to do. New stuff for the new millennium, you know? We couldn't find any sort of common ground that would allow us to compromise. And this, uh, the next one is, is from editor Bob Harris on Lee's back-to-basics approach. Um, it's from the same source. I believe both of them are for, from comics creators on X-Men. The X-Men now had aliens and magically powered characters on the team. I felt like we had to go back to what X-Men was all about. And to me, X-Men was Xavier and Scott and Jean and all the other classic characters. 
Chris didn't want to do that kind of stuff anymore. He felt that he'd done it already. My point was, sure, but that's the X-Men. It was getting so we were speaking the same language, but we couldn't understand each other. I am so soundly Team Claremont on this one, I gotta say. I mean, honestly, I go back and forth because the fact is that in this non-team era of X-Men, uh, you know, that sort of led up to the Extinction Agenda, it was interesting stuff Claremont was doing, but I gotta say at times it did feel less like what I think of as X-Men. But it's interesting. I mean, we've talked about this in context of the movies, I think, most. The fact that it's really cool often to see someone take a concept and push it in a radically different direction. And one of the great things about comics in a shared universe superhero line, and something we've talked about in terms of the current X lineup, and also actually in terms of Uncanny X-Men and X-Factor running simultaneously in this era, is that you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. There's nothing to prevent you from having the classic X-Men together on a team doing classic X-Men stuff and have a radically different, much more dy dynamic lineup and story that's doing, you know, more experimental things, and to have those going simultaneously. And the idea of, you know, I, I get the point of having sort of one major unifying architectural style or architect for a line, and I, that's, that's definitely the direction that Marvel has leaned over the years, but... I vastly, vastly prefer the eras where you've got a lot of different creative teams doing very, very different things with different titles and teams. And I think if there was more of a core traditional X-Men book at the time, I think that would have gone over a lot well. Then, you know, Chris Claremont could have done his more experimental stuff simultaneously. But the fact is, the book called Uncanny X-Men had a lot of really unexpected stuff going on at the time. So I can really see where both Harris and Claremont were coming from, and to a degree, Jim Lee— what happened happened, whether it was through the best, eh, don't know. Well, Uncanny X-Men was doing other stuff, but X-Factor was literally the original five X-Men fighting Sentinels. I mean, it's exactly what Harris said he wanted. Well, and I guess it comes back to what you think of as default X-Men. Like, I think for a lot of people, for instance, Mark Guggenheim, who's writing X-Men Gold right now, it's the old Claremont Burn stuff, and that seems to be what Jim Lee was pushing to go back to. And so at the time, you didn't have that dynamic going on. Interesting, since the writer was still writing. I think it's important to point out that this is before the X-Men had been translated much into other media. There is, I think now, a much more default, this is the definitive X-Men team, and it's largely a byproduct of the cartoon that's going to start shortly after the X-Men relaunch. That wasn't around at this point, so really people people had, you know, the era of the comics that they'd come in on. There wasn't anything that had the kind of reach that the cartoon would, would subsequently have. Seriously, like... I, we cannot overstate how big a deal that cartoon was for X-Men fans, both new and old. Like, we talked to a lot of listeners, and so many got their start with the X-Men cartoon. And I mean, for me personally, I'd been reading X-Men before the cartoon, but the cartoon was what made me obsessed with X-Men. So, like, I was right there with everybody else. It was so good. I mean, for some values of good. Many of the episodes and aspects were so good. It had its moments. It definitely did. Mostly uh, not the very end of it. God, the last few episodes were just garbage. Oh, why? Jubilee's fairy tale? Oh, it had so much potential. Jubilee's fairy tale is my second least favorite episode of the X-Men animated series. What's your least favorite? Um, the one, that's I don't remember the name of the writer, but he's, he's, he writes pickup artist guides and it involves Rogue and Gambit and like some fat shaming and it's just really creepy. Have I just blocked this out? Maybe I've just blocked this out. I don't know. Chris and I talked about it a lot really, really early in the show, like the first the first episode he, sub he substitute guest hosted on. Apparently, I need to listen to episode three again. So someone interviewed me at Vegas this weekend, and he was asking what my favorite episodes of the show were. And I realized that I've listened to all of them multiple times because, you know, we proof them, we go through them, we I, I write the copy. I usually listen to them, not counting recording, at least two or three times 
in, in whole before they go up. And then I just never want to listen to them again. So I never go back and revisit them. And so my sense of what my favorite ones are like, well, this one was really fun to record. And I really <laughs> like the cold open on that one. I think I eventually said that my favorite one was the brood saga. Honestly, I think that's one of our best. Was it the brood they carried? It's yes. so strange having listeners who are way more familiar yeah. with our work than we are. I mean, I feel like this is that's the equivalent of us asking Nascentia and Claremont about really specific X-Men plot points that they don't remember. Oh, right. Like that time with a live episode we did at New York where neither Chris Claremont nor Louise Simonson re- remembered the whole, like, X-Men brood clones in space thing. And we're like, you guys wrote it. Come on. It's the best thing. But no, I mean, that you're when you're making stuff... On a serial and weekly basis, you just, you're working to the deadline. Pretty much. Oh, I very much know. But yeah, so I, I, it was, it was a very weird experience and it's always really strange going back and trying to remember when things were. My sense of time is so warped around episodes. Like there's a lot of stuff I remember being ages ago that was pretty recent and a lot of stuff that I remember being not that long ago that was like two and a half, three years. Pretty much that, yeah. So listeners, um, thank you for being our podcast archivists because we're terrible at it, apparently. You're lovely. By the way, we have a wiki. Did you know we have a wiki? I, when I say we have a wiki, I mean our listeners have a wiki because we don't actually do anything to it, but there are amazing people who keep it updated. And this is a shout out to all of those folks. And if you want help, you should post in the comments of this episode and recruit other people because you're amazing and we appreciate and respect you deeply. Yeah, and we should totally uh, link to that more prominently on the site and do a lot of stuff with the site for that matter. Yeah, no, so we have, we actually have some pretty big stuff in the works. Um, we are doing some things with the shop that I'm very, very excited about. And we are, we are planning some, some website changes. Probably eventually we should, we should, I, I, I want us to get new cover art because I, I feel like I'm especially really out of date in it. <laughs> I suppose there is that, although the cover art is so good. But I know it's so good and I love it so much. Well, Anyway, we narcissistically digress because we have X-Men stuff to tell you about. And one of those things that I definitely wanted to talk about was where the story was supposed to go back before Chris Claremont very suddenly quit due to circumstance. Was it the Mutant Wars? No, no, it was not the Mutant Wars. We were actually past the point where the Mutant Wars would have happened. Was it more Inferno? It was probably more Inferno, let's be real. But according to my research, what it was, was a different... A resolution to this story, Magneto was apparently supposed to show up to help in Claremont's original version. We did have some hints that he was the Shadow King's, like, other nemesis based on some stuff Magneto said in X-Men 275. Um, Xavier would have come out of this a lot more unscathed, but the Shadow King would not have been fully defeated at the end. He would have come back to life to take over the Hellfire Club, which of course had been foreshadowed all the hell over the place, and the Reavers, and he was going to get Senator Kelly elected President of the United States to further stoke the fires of bigotry. And this all would have led up to a gigantic climactic battle in Uncanny X-Men number 300, where Xavier would die. He would sacrifice his life, killing the Shadow King, leaving the X-Men without a leader because Claremont thought they had outgrown the need for a leader. I gotta say, I think that would have been a lot cooler than what we got here, as much as I do enjoy many aspects of this story. I agree wholeheartedly. I have mixed feelings about the Shadow King as a villain, but he is fun when he's written well. And setting him and Xavier up as kind of equal opposites, having Xavier die taking him out is, I feel like, one of the few ways you can really kill Charles Xavier and have it work very, very well. I think that would absolutely be solid. This way, I mean, we've got the Shadow King. He gets taken out. Of course he comes back. He comes back all the fucking time. He's back right now, literally, in the comics. He's an astonishing X-Men right now, and it's actually pretty awesome. Yeah, so, um, obviously he doesn't stay dead anyway, but man, that, even even just the summary of that story, I think, has a little more heft than the the story that we're, we're going to be talking about today. Well, speaking of summaries, 
we have two teams meeting up and a lot of plot threads coming together, so I say let's jump into a previously on X-Men and also X-Factor. It's so sexy. It's so evil. That's right, because much of this story takes place on Muir Isle, or Muir Island if you look at the little corner of the cover of each chapter, which is the Scottish home of geneticist Dr. Moira McTaggart. And she lives there with a handful of semi-random mutants and Morlock refugees. She's got uh, Jamie Madrox, multiple man. She's got Siren, um, Teresa Cassidy, that's Banshee's daughter. Banshee is there on and off. Um, I think he is away at the moment, but he's going to be coming back shortly. Callisto is there, but doesn't show up in this story arc at all, I don't think. Yeah, and like a whole lot of Morlocks. Almost all the Morlocks who escaped the mutant massacre, except the ones that are working for Mask. Uh, Rogue is there, too, at this point, I believe. Yeah, she just shows up, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But lately on Muir Island, everybody has been getting very evil and very sexy, which basically means that they have darker and harsher personalities, and also tighter and more revealing clothing, most of which was designed by Moira herself. Now, we know that this evil and sexy has been happening as a result of the lingering and creeping and growing influence of the Shadow King, an evil psychic entity whom we just talked about, so obviously you know what's going on there now. Yeah, now the characters aren't really solid on that. Some of the outside observers, especially Banshee, know that something's up, but they're not really sure what. Oh, we forgot the most important player in this. We forgot Polaris. Polaris, that is right. Lorna Dane, previously the mistress of magnetism, Magneto's daughter, uh, depending on who and when you ask. Now she's got a ton of muscles and she makes people hate each other. Right, she showed up on Muir Island after having her powers messed with in the Savage Land by Zaladane, who may or may not have been her sister. It was weird. And now, everywhere she goes, people are kind of jerks to each other. That was kind of how this corruption first started to really manifest on Muir Island. It was very confusing, it was never fully explained, and thanks to the writer shift in this storyline, it never fully will be. I mean, there's an explanation, but it doesn't really hold together. There's a lot of stuff that just kind of happens in this arc. It's true. Now, the X-Men, well, they're finally a team again, after not being for dozens of issues. In fact, there's so much a team that they have the same sexy blue and gold variations on the old X-Men slash New Mutants training uniforms. It's actually kind of cool to see the X-Men dressed, you know, similarly. I guess. I really, really, really like their Australia outfits. Oh, well, yeah, me too. I mean, if we had to go back to one set of costumes, then I vote those. But I guess, I mean, they've all dived through the Siege Perilous, so they, they don't have consistent clothing anyway. But who are the X-Men right now? Who are the ones who were in space and who are, are now just back from that? So we have on the team Storm, Wolverine, Jubilee, Gambit, Psylocke, Banshee, and Forge. And in space, they beat up some Skrulls and they rescued Charles Xavier, um, who had been imprisoned in some sort of uh, psychic web while a Skrull went around replacing him. And he's back to himself. And once they found him, they caught him up on what had been going on on Earth, which was basically, yeah, everyone might be dead and Muir Island's gotten real sexy. And that's all Charles Xavier needed to hear because there could be no normal cause for that level of evilness and sexiness. That had to be his old nemesis, the Shadow King, a dude who he had a psychic duel with way back in the day in Cairo and killed. But when you're fighting a psychic entity, killing that psychic entity's body doesn't actually accomplish very much. Right. The Shadow King has resurfaced a few times. He possessed karma for a fairly long time in New Mutants before being driven out. And these days, he is in the body of Jacob Rees, who is, I believe, an FBI agent. Uh, yes, a dead FBI agent. Specifically, the right, Shadow King yeah. is inhabiting a corpse using corpse telepathy. Let's just call it corpse telepathy. And no one has caught on to this because... 
I maybe Reese just didn't have very good hygiene before. Well, his assistant, Leanne Shen, has definitely caught on to it, but she's brainwashed and corrupted enough that she doesn't really mind. She's the Shadow King's assistant, not Reese's assistant. Uh, she was a doctor whom the Shadow King also brainwashed shortly after possessing Reese. So Charles Xavier, knowing what a big deal this all is, kisses his girlfriend, the Shi'ar Empress Lalandra, goodbye and heads back to Earth for the first time in a very, very long time. Speaking of folks who are just back from space, X-Factor is still licking their wounds in the aftermath of Endgame. And the original five X-Men that comprise X-Factor, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, Iceman, and Archangel, they just had to give up Cyclops' infant son to a time-traveling cybernetic ghost named Ascani in order to save the kid from a techno-organic virus that Apocalypse had infected him with. Now the kid is being treated in the future, and he will, of course, grow up into Grizzled Soldier Guy and current leader of the New Mutants, Cable. Fucking X-Men! Fucking X-Men. Plus, their friend-slash-home-slash-spaceship-slash-skyscraper ship exploded in this conflict, and what was left of- But it's okay. It's okay, because what was left of Ship's mind went with the baby to the future. So, that's a thing. It's gonna change its name to Professor later. Excalibur is currently off fighting Doctor Doom and Limbo, so they can't help with this story. And the New Mutants are running around preparing to become X-Force, which is to say blowing things up and glaring real hard at each other. But they're doing so off-panel. Why are they not in this storyline? Well, probably because they didn't have an active title at the time. No, 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 I know why, Miles. It's really hard to get that far that fast on those little teeny tiny Liefeld feet. <laughs> That's probably it. So, with all of that setup and all of those what-ifs and all of that behind-the-scenes context out of the way, let's actually talk about these comics. And this is going to be Uncanny X-Men number 278 and 279 and X-Factor number 69. All right, let's start with Uncanny X-Men number 278, The Battle of Muir Isle. This is written by Claremont, and we have a guest penciler this issue who I am so happy to see back on X-Men. This is Paul Smith, one of my very favorite X-Men artists. It is. Now, I don't like his work here as much as I like it in, say, The Judgment War or his original X-Men run, but it's still really good to see him back. Fuck you, it's still beautiful. <laughs> Fair enough. It's lovely. Paul Smith <laughs> makes good art, Miles. He does. I, I would be the first to agree. He also draws really good Colossus, and that's important to me. Seriously, at least for when the writers remember that Colossus is supposed to be around. But let's talk story. All right. We open with the Shadow King lounging on what I can only assume is some kind of very fancy throne. He is accompanied by Dr. Lian Shen, the woman he mind-controlled um, a while ago, shortly after he took over the body of Jacob Reese. Now, we've talked a bit about the Shadow King. Do we need to really give more history? He's very old. He's a he's a psychic parasitic entity. He hates Xavier. The main thing we've seen is that he seems to really feed on negative human emotion. He tries to instill hatred and selfishness and sorrow and just all the bad stuff in all the people he can around him. That makes him more powerful. And he also has such a hate on for Charles Xavier and also for Storm that it's uh, kind of ridiculous. Now, the Shadow King is such a hardcore villain that he gets to narrate this page twice at the same time. Not only is he the caption narrator, but he's also keeping up a steady word balloon mon monologue for Dr. Shen's benefit. Oh, man. So he's a psychic entity composed entirely of bigotry and exposition. Yeah. And teeth. I guess I can get behind that. Okay, so speaking of the teeth, so we've seen the Shadow King's, like, true form as much as he has a true form a few times, but to reiterate, he's like a big, glowy, gaseous, psychic energy monster with giant goddamn teeth, and he looks really genuinely intimidating. I think he's kind of funny. 
You can be intimidating and silly at the same time, don't get me wrong. Well, he is very happy right now. He is all aflutter over how easily humans can be nudged into hate and violent bigotry, which is exactly what he has been up to and about which he now pontificates for several straight pages. Because this dude, he is all about the exposition. And in particular, what he's very happy about is he's using this as part of some kind of nebulous but diabolical plan that he is going to use to take out the X-Men who have been thwarting and thwarting him. Based on the attendant illustration, this plan is going to involve the X-Men getting beaten up by a double dragon bad guy while a beleaguered businessman struggles to lift a computer monitor and also there might be a cowboy. Well, the main thing that jumped out at me here is that as we see the Shadow King's influence on the world, we're seeing a protest, we're seeing a rally, which appears to be very specifically an anti-gay AIDS-related protest. So this came out in 1991. This was like very, very topical. Yeah, it's topical as fuck. Yeah. And I mean, I do miss when X-Men was just like, no, let's do like ripped from the headlines kind of storylines here. Let's have the metaphor be as explicit and direct as possible. Remember when AIDS wasn't exclusively allegorical in X-Men? Right, pre-legacy virus. Although I gotta say, as an AIDS metaphor goes, that wasn't the worst metaphor. I, I kind of like the legacy virus as a story point. Again, I don't have a problem with the metaphor. I have a problem with it replacing the reality in the intersection. It's sort of like the, yeah, you can talk about mutant deportation, but also address issues facing immigrants at the same time and look at those intersections. Totally, totally valid. Looking at you, current X-Men writers. <laughs> but this is a big deal as far as the Shadow King's power because he's never really worked on this grand of a scale before. He's never really tried to inspire like this level of worldwide hatred before. And Dr. Shen, who I really like because she's a super passive-aggressive minion, like she's she's mind-controlled, but she's basically playing the role of the Shadow King's inner doubt and or common sense, basically says, yeah, but you know, here's the thing. Xavier and the X-Men have always beaten you. What, what makes you think this time's going to be any different? And the Shadow King, who is the king not only of shadows, but also of tautology, basically explains that, no, no, he knows he's going to beat them this time because he's going to beat them this time. I mean, you can't argue with that logic. Like, you literally can't argue with it. There's, there's no way to. While all of this is going down wherever it's happening, at the headquarters of England's Weird Happenings organization, someone is stealing Excalibur's very fancy plane. Okay, this bugs me a little, because while I am happy to see Excalibur stuff and X-Men stuff crossing over, because that happens so seldom, and I'm always happy to see the Weird Happenings organization, their base isn't just like this generic, boring warehouse. Their base was in the Tower of London and Excalibur. That's way more dramatic. All right, here's the thing. I've got headcanon here. I can no-prize this. Okay, let's hear it. Based on the sensibilities of Excalibur, the storytelling, I'm going to go ahead and assume that the Ravens chased them out. Ravens are jerks, and they do make terrible, terrible noises. Okay, first of all, the ravens at the Tower of London are great. And the Raven Master is online and on social media, and he posts videos of them, and he has a pet one who is really delightful. And I'm going to link to this because it's really great, and I have I have feelings about these ravens. They're good ravens. I approve. But, um, yeah, ravens are also really big, and they'll totally kick your ass, and they will remember you, and they will remember your children, and they will steal all of your shit and kill you if you fuck with them. So, yeah, I assume that Captain Britain got, got them angry at some point and all of who had to pack up and move out because the Ravens would, would take none of that nonsense. That does sound like something Captain Britain would probably do. Right. So the person who is trying to steal Excalibur's plane is a gentleman dressed in very fancy pants, very shiny gold Shi'ar-looking space armor, but it includes a full-face helmet. So obviously the identity of this individual is supposed to remain a mystery. Hint. 
it's Charles Xavier. Right, it's actually a pretty similar set of armor to what he was wearing when he was the strike lord of the Shi'ar Empire uh, back when he was actually a Skrull. So I guess he killed the Skrull, took the Skrull's clothes off, and put them on himself. I like that the armor is specifically shaped for Shi'ar hair. I mean, that makes sense to me. Like, you gotta put that hair somewhere. It's kind of like how Wolverine has a helmet shaped like his hair, except that that doesn't actually work at all. But you'd kind of think that, like, the royal consort would have high enough rank to get, like, his own custom-shaped helmet. You would think, but at the same time, when in Rome, have a big crested ridge on your head like the Romans do. Miles, Miles, the, the Rome metaphors don't start up real hard till Vulcan. Oh, God, frickin' Vulcan. And Romulus. Ugh, even worse. Well, anyway... Xavier's shiny Shi'ar armor, and its head fin that may or may not be useful, block all the bullets that the various guards are firing at him for long enough for him to mind-whammy all the guards and skip out with the plane. But I gotta kinda wonder, he's Professor Xavier. The Weird Happenings organization knows who he is. They know that he's an ally of Excalibur, right? Like, the world doesn't think he's dead. He's just been gone for a long time. Like, couldn't he just say, hey, uh, I need my plane. I know my buddies aren't here, but can I, like, leave a note? Okay, cool. See you later. See, all of that is true, but you're forgetting one real salient detail here, Miles. Yeah? Professor Xavier is a jerk. Valid point. And hey, Paul Smith is the artist again, so even more valid of a point. I mean, I can think of a number of reasons that he might not have wanted to go through the paperwork, or even, you know, he could have just walked in and possessed people, actually. Yeah, this is this is gratuitous and stupid. Damn it, Charlie. Never mind, I take back every, everything I said about it potentially making sense. Professor Xavier is just a jerk. That's it. He's a shiny jerk right now. But Xavier aside, let me tell you what else is happening. Because this is important. Meanwhile, on Muir Isle, Moira McTaggart, who now dresses like some kind of warlord, has built a giant arena where she makes superheroes fight for her entertainment. Oh, but dude, she's not just dressed like a warlord. Like, her, her sort of chieftain outfit is amazing. She's got, like, this red tam, plus these mashing pirate boots and pirate gloves. She's got a big fur cloak and a bandolier, I think two bandoliers, and feathers and big discs on her head and on her shoulder. It's like she was evil sexy Moira, and now she's evil Scottish fashionista Moira. I gotta say, I really wish she had kept this outfit because it is rad as hell. I know it's super ostentatious, but come on, this is the Marvel Universe. Like, that's not by any means a blocking problem. Okay, look. Mr. Sinister is still the high bar for ostentation. She's got a way to go. Right, right. I mean, if anybody thinks she's overdressed, she can just point over to the corner where Sinister is just going, <laughs> This is my favorite outfit. And then he, like, wriggles his arm and all of the tiny um, Swarovski crystals that he's sewn onto the big streamer parts just sort of shimmer and blind you. I just like, got back from Vegas, sorry. So, on this island, this island that is basically psychically run by the Shadow King, um, okay, wait, we can who's just call there? This evil, sexy Muir Island. Okay, who's on evil, sexy Muir Island being evil and sexy? Well, there would be evil, sexy Moira McTaggart, as we already covered. We have uh, evil, sexy Guido Caracella, who is eventually going to be Strong Guy, but doesn't have that code name yet. And the last time we saw him, he was in Los Angeles in Uncanny X-Men 274, so he's been there for a little bit. Yeah, how did he end up on Muir Island? We never find out. Hey, it's the Mirror Island Saga. Who else do we have? Uh, we have evil, sexy Teresa Cassidy. That's Siren, Banshee's daughter. We've got evil, sexy Multiple Man, who is, I presume, you know, multiply evil and multiply sexy. That is, is Jamie Madrox. He duplicates a bunch and wears a speed skater outfit. We've got evil, sexy Legion. It's Professor Xavier's son, David Haller, who is also like 30 people and complicated and has some issues and murdered Destiny recently. 
let's see, we've got evil, sexy rogue, which really is not actually that far from frequent rogue situations. It's true. She started out evil and she's always been sexy. Now, speaking of how did people actually get here, we last saw her in Uncanny X-Men 275 in the Savage Land, just bidding a tearful goodbye to Magneto. I guess she just got bored and showed up on Mirror Isle? Who knows? Look, everyone has those days. We've also got evil, sexy Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander, whom you might recall from the Demon Bear Saga and some subsequent stuff. Yeah, we haven't seen them in a really, really long time. And as much as it's very uncomfortable the way ethnicity is treated in their transformation during the Demon Bear Saga, they're two characters I've always really, really liked. This former police officer and former nurse who sort of got brought into the X-universe against their will and tried to make the best of it. So it's nice seeing them again, even though they don't do all that much. Now, we are introduced to these guys mostly in context of Moira's big fancy arena, where, when we first see them, Rogue is beating the hell out of Strong Guy. And Siren, who's in the audience, claims, hey, this is fine, because this arena is their equivalent of the Danger Room, except that in the arena, they fight each other instead of robots. Whoa, 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 wait. The X-Men also fought each other in the Danger Room all the fucking time. Yeah, well, usually not so much to the death. And while they don't fight to the death here, it is clearly intended to be really, really brutal and upsetting. Yeah, no, that, that also happened in the Danger Room. Well, you know... Regardless, you dead. (laughs) Well, that's just Gambit being Gambit. But after Rogue beats the hell out of Guido in the arena, she has a crisis of conscience in the shower. And this is some of the most Claremont dialogue we've seen in a while. And with him departing the book so soon, I'm glad we get it. It was wonderful. It was obscene. I can't wait to do it again. This is wrong. Look, look, Rogue, I think we've all been there, okay? But thankfully, before she can bemoan too much, the Shadow King shows up in the mirror and she gets possessed good and proper. She is also bemoaning standing up, which is important because if you bemoan lying down, you get scotch in your hair. Mm, Yeah, good Kyle Baker reference. Everything I know about vices, I pretty much learned from Why I Hate Saturn, which really actually explains a lot about me. (laughs) It does. Listeners, if you haven't read Why I Hate Saturn, it's actually great. Recommended. It is goddamn brilliant. It's so good and I love it dearly. Now, back in the sky, the Blackbird with its mysterious armored pilot has, thanks to some mysterious cloud cover, managed to shake off its would-be pursuers. He's also with Storm, Wolverine, Forge, Banshee, Gambit, Psylocke, and Jubilee, the X-Men who Lila Shaney brought to space. Lila Shaney herself, though, isn't around. I guess she stayed in space, doing Lila things, being awesome. Heists. I assume that she had heists. Probably. Heists and gigs. Anyway, Xavier wants to bring in X-Factor, but Wolverine points out that there is going to be a problem with that approach. News reports say they're dead, blown up with their ship. To which Xavier rejoins, As I recall from my scan of Storm's memories, the same claim was made about you after some imbroglio in Dallas. Imbroglio in Dallas should totally be like the first retrospective on the fall of the mutants, like the first book written about it. Please call it that. Fictional characters in the past. Imbroglio in Dallas should be the title of an instrumental track on an X-Men concept album. Oh, yeah, I like that, too. I mean, you know, if Xavier has taught these kids anything, it's probably to fake their own deaths. It's true. It's true. He did. He, I, I imagine his heart just swelling with pride here. being Like, yeah, that's my kids right there. Well, they get to Mirror Island, so hey, time to check it out. And Wolverine, Psylocke, Storm, Jubilee, and Banshee all jump out of the plane. Uh, the ones who don't have wings, in this case Wolverine and Psylocke, have fancy-ass metal glider wings, which are pretty rad, and Jubilee is riding on Wolverine's back, which seems like a really bad idea to me, since the dude is already stri- trying to stay aloft with the significant liability of a metal fucking skeleton. 
I mean, I feel like he's probably just buoyed aloft by his own awesomeness because he's a dude with a metal skeleton jumping out of an airplane to fight evil sexy people. Like, if you can put something on the side of a van, it's just going to work. Logic becomes irrelevant at that point. Yeah, okay, I can respect that. And as Jubilee does this, I really love the Storm and Gambit dialogue we get here, especially its defining Gambit dialogue. Qu'est-ce que c'est, Stormy? You never had any fun as a child, gonna begrudge young jubilation here? This is not a game, Gambit. Au contraire, Cher. It's the ultimate game. For the highest of stakes, n'est-ce pas? Our lives. Shame is we can't loot the place clean in the process. I sort of assume that Gambit just steals continually from wherever he is, and like at the end of any adventure, they make him turn his pockets inside out. It turns out his metal boots aren't the only things making him less stealthy. It's the fact that hit the pockets of his coat are just like clanking with every step he takes. He's got like candelabras and like uh, small combination safes and blow dryers and silverware sets just all crammed in there. Yeah, he just he just steals really random shit from wherever he is. It's like his pockets are full of like quarters and sticks of gum and heirloom jewelry and like prophylactics and, you know, whatever. Now, these characters wouldn't be the X-Men if they didn't talk over whatever the hell they were doing. So as Banshee lands, he waxes nostalgic about how he's pretty sure that everything got fucked up when Polaris showed up on Muir Isle. Well, what mainly happened, um, he qualifies, is that Moira got super sexy and Banshee was real down with that. I mean, you know, at first, like, he's kind of a freak himself, but like, he's got his freak limits. Miles, Banshee is a gentle freak. Banshee is a gentle freak. <laughs> he probably raises rabbits and will someday ascend to Nirvana where he will be rewarded with his weight in uncut Turkish hashish. I think it probably had been too long since we made a Doonesbury reference. Speaking of Doonesbury references, I don't remember whether I mentioned this on the show, but did you did you see what Max Carlton did for my birthday? I did, and you should tell the listeners about it. It's so good. I stuck this on the Tumblr, and I'm going to stick it in this week's As Mentioned because I cannot go back to it often enough. It is, it is perfect. It is beautiful. Um... So long ago on the show, I made a joke about X Factor as the Walden Puddle commune from Doonesbury and about the relationship with Trish Tilby being roughly Walden Puddle's relationship with Roland Headley Jr., which is to say they bring him in and convince him that their lives are one big fancy orgy and that their lilac bush is a pot plant. <laughs> and Max redrew the strip, but with X Factor members. And and it's it's so beautiful. It's so amazing seeing a really stupid joke I made like brought to beautiful fruition. It's, it's, it's really lovely. I assume this is how parents feel when the kids, like, graduate from high school or something. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man, we need to print out all the various fan art the listeners have done and put it on our fridges. Yeah, man, I need, I need to, I need to, now, now that I am, I am more functionally settled in New York, I need, I need to get back to posting some galleries because we've gotten some very cool stuff in the meantime, too. You all make neat stuff. Oh, my God. It's true. You're very cool. Well, meanwhile on Muir Island, Banshee finds a mannequin with what he claims is the garb of a Highland chieftain. And I don't know much about Scottish history, but I'm a little skeptical. Okay, no, no, no. Miles, what you have to understand is that on Earth 616, Scottish tradition was influenced very heavily by Wagnerian opera. I feel really good about that, actually. So that's why the traditional garb of a Highland chieftain involves big fucking head wings and, like, metal bra cups and shit. Okay. Also, there's a claymore that she's been using? Okay. Damn, Mora. Well, Psylocke uses her telepathy to give everybody a glimpse of the combat arena. Storm goes to investigate, but she's immediately waxed by Legion. Unfortunately, the psychic link is active, so that feedback hits a lot of folks and takes Psylocke out as well. 
Now, we're not going to go blow by blow through the rest of the fights, but there is one point I want to comment on, which is that Siren manages to scream her dad out of the air. And that is really interesting from a continuity standpoint, because what it means is that they are not immune to each other's powers. And this is, of course, something that's handled really inconsistently in X-Men. Like, the whole thing that Louise Simonson was going for in X-Factor Forever that we talked about last episode, where it's religious, it's always the case that uh, family members can't affect each other with their powers. I mean, sometimes, depending on who the writer is, depending on if, if they remember. This, though, is a particularly odd case because not only is it family members, it's a parent and kid with nearly identical powers. I mean, if there was ever a case where it would actually make sense, it's this one. And yet. But anyway, we have lots of fights, multiple man corners Gambit, Wolverine and Jubilee are ambushed by Rogue and Amanda Sefton, and I do really love Jubilee's line as Wolverine fights Rogue. It's a knockdown, dragout fist-a-rama! Okay, listeners, I want to make a public service announcement here and say... There are absolutely no circumstances under which it is appropriate or acceptable to use the phrase fistorama. None. They don't exist. Don't do it. Don't be jubilee. So we mentioned Amanda Sefton was here. Amanda Sefton is the mystical, sometimes girlfriend of Nightcrawler, who was also kind of his sister. It was weird. The last time we saw her, she got captured when the Reavers attacked Mirror Island, and then she just was never mentioned again, and now she shows up, and then she's just going to disappear right away. She appears in this story for a grand total of one panel. And the next time we see her is not going to be until Excalibur number 75. Poor Amanda Sefton. The writers can't remember that she exists. Yeah, no, she is one of the least consistent characters. Fortunately, she's, you know, teleporting and magical, so it's really easy to come up with excuses. It turns out she just has very low commitment. Like, she'll help the heroes, but as soon as things get tough, eh, she's just going to go play Crazy Taxi for a long time. Fun fact, Amanda Sefton loves Crazy Taxi. I mean, part of it was the soundtrack, it just gets her really pumped, but part of it's that she thinks the Dreamcast was an underappreciated console. So question, does she have access to Crazy Taxi in 1991 because it was developed early in the Marvel Universe or as a byproduct of her magical powers? Has she time-traveled in order to obtain more advanced video game technology to play Crazy Taxi? I mean, I kind of figure that she and Ilyana Rasputin must have been buds before Ilyana got de-aged, right? Like, they have some similar backgrounds. So Ilyana probably did travel to the future using her time-space teleportation and just, you know, brought that stuff back. I really like the idea that the stuff that Ilyana thinks to bring back from the future isn't sports almanacs, it's not newspapers, it's Crazy Taxi. I mean, Crazy Taxi is pretty awesome. Okay, but this is Ilyana. Don't you think she would have grabbed Muscle March, too? Yeah, probably, but I don't know that she would have passed that one along to Amanda Sefton. Anyway, that was for the Wii. Anyway, Xavier has taken the Blackbird and headed back to Westchester to look for his original five students. So he literally just dumped the X-Men out over Muir Island and was like, see ya, kids! Later, suckers! I mean, he did mention that he wanted to get his original students, and to be fair, like, the way he's looking at the situation is as this being the big showdown. Like, this is what it took to get him to come back to Earth when nothing else over the last many years has done so. So, I get it. But what he's greeted by when he gets there is, of course, the ruins of the mansion. The mansion was demolished during Inferno well after Xavier went off to space. Ha-ha. I mean, at least he's getting a chance to get used to it. This, may, this is the second time the mansion's been demolished in um, modern X-Men history. It's not going to be the last. Not by a long shot. Man, they should just make it out of, like, connects or something. <laughs> right? I mean, something that's just easier to snap back together. But as soon as Xavier leaves the psychic shielding of the plane, he is telepathically ambushed by the Shadow King, who glows for a while, 
and then sends Colossus, remember, we saw him possessed a couple issues ago, to murder the fuck out of Charles Xavier. Which brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 279, Bad to the Bone. <laughs> and so it is. Uh, we have Andy Hubert on pencils here. I like Andy Hubert's art. It's nice. Yeah, it is. It's it's not it's not among my favorites, not the most standout to me, but Hubert is a really solid draftsman, good storyteller, perfectly adequate for these purposes, perfectly good for these purposes. I mean, he does he does a very nice job here. He does. Who also does is Chris Claremont for the first half of the issue because halfway through his script stops and Fabian Nicieza takes over from there. Oh my god, it's like he got possessed by the Shadow King, but the Shadow King was Fabian Nicieza, so it wasn't nearly as sinister, just kind of a little bit awkward in the transition. You know, I, I've never actually seen Fabian Nicieza. Maybe he is a big psychic entity with giant teeth. He is not. He is a very friendly gentleman. I've talked to him a couple times. Oh, well, that's probably for the best. I really love Xavier's uh, internal monologue here, because as Colossus is charging at him, he starts to realize a lot of this bad stuff, a lot of what's happened to these gentle souls is his fault. Peter Nikolaevich Rasputin. I found him in the Siberian collective that had been his home for most of his young life, a farm boy with the soul of a poet. But also, most importantly in my eyes, in my arrogance, a mutant. And so I made him a warrior. I like Professor Xavier's self-awareness here. Obviously, many of his choices have been questionable ones, and certainly this is one of them. I mean, who could Peter have been had he not been drafted into this fight that he never really wanted to be part of? So the fact that Xavier's at least thinking about that, that he at least feels guilty about it, even if he still does what he has to, I dig that. Yeah. I talk a lot of shit about Professor Xavier, as I feel one should, appropriately, but one of the things that I like about him most as a character is that he is he is someone whose dickery is fueled almost entirely on good intentions, and he often has enough clarity to recognize that. He is, again, he's a telepath, he's incredibly powerful, and that makes a lot of complex ethical issues way, way weightier for him than most people are equipped to handle. And he does his best, and his best is often fairly terrible. But seeing him come back and re-examine it, as he does here, and as, as he will eventually in, in stories like Deadly Genesis, is always really interesting and tends to accompany the moments where I find him most interesting and most appealing as a character. Totally agreed. I always go back to the first Legion storyline in New Mutants, where he actually does examine the fact that hooking up with Gabrielle Holler, his telepathic patient back in the day, and the mother of Legion, yeah, that was pretty crappy. He feels bad about it, and he wants to do better and make amends as best he can. Yeah. I mean, yes, it was seriously not okay. But, you know, if you do something like that, hey, I believe in second chances. Or if it's Xavier, like, 700th. <laughs> or if it's Xavier 700th. Well, who's also here is Stevie Hunter. You know, the New Mutants old dance teacher? Uh, she was actually in the car that Colossus threw at Xavier. She barely survived, but now the two of them are on the run because Colossus, possessed, is goddamn unstoppable. I mean, he's pretty unstoppable anyway. Not as unstoppable as he will be once he becomes the juggernaut. True, true. But still nigh, nigh unstoppable when marauding. So they head through the hatch into the mansion basement. Now, they notice here that the defenses are mostly shot, thanks to what happened in Kings of Pain. That's a nice little nod. But they do succeed in luring Colossus into a hologram in the danger room, a hologram of the cafe in Cairo, where Xavier and Amal Farouk, the host of the Shadow King at the time, first fought, where Xavier killed Amal Farouk. Now, Amal Farouk has a few specific weaknesses. One of them is Charles Xavier. Another one is nostalgia. It's true. The Shadow King narrates that he lived a lifetime in Amal Farouk's body. 
And that's interesting because this is one of the first solid implications we have that Farouk was not who the Shadow King was initially before his mind was freed from his body. He was just one host among many, a host that the Shadow King spent a long time in, to be fair. But still, that implies that the Shadow King isn't just a mutant. The Shadow King is this ageless, greater entity, maybe something beyond a mutant even. He lives in Jar in the Age of Apocalypse. Maybe even something beyond a mutant. A Jar Inhabitor. Look what we found in the park in the dark. We'll take it home. We'll call it Clark. It will live in our house. <laughs> it will grow and grow. Will our mother like this? We don't know. Or The Origin of Superman by Shel Silverstein. <laughs> Perfect. Well, anyway, Colossus does manage to burst loose. Even possessed, he is still crafty. And so he can do that. And at that point, Xavier jumps into Colossus's mind, realizes that what the Shadow King is possessing is the Peter Nicholas persona, the peaceful ponytailed artist that Colossus became after he lost his memories when he went through the Siege Perilous back in the day. Xavier realizes Colossus is happy, maybe for the first time since Xavier met him. So he does what he must under these circumstances as Charles Xavier, and in, in this case, as the catalyst for the plot, and just kills Peter Nicholas. Peter Nicholas is gone. You're back to being Piotr Rasputin now, Colossus. Deal with your fucking angst. And this is rough because we do see, I mean, we know how much this hurts Colossus himself. Of course, we've seen the anguish he's been put through, honestly, ever since he had to kill Proteus way back in the day. And it just got worse and worse from there. Honestly, Colossus has always had a pretty rough time. He is, he is, as Xavier presciently notes in this issue, he is, he is a really sweet, really gentle kid whom Xavier recruited and was like, do the fights. And Colossus was like, I just want to hang out with my family and farm and paint, okay? I know. And so it's it's rough. I mean, we see how much this, we know how much this hurts Peter. We see how much this hurts Xavier, but it's got to happen. And I think it does effectively show us the stakes of what's going on right here. Objectively, it's also probably better than letting everyone get murdered. Uh, well, there is that. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., Leon Shen is waiting on the Shadow Kingified Jacob Reese, reminding him that, dude, you're in a corpse, and the more you spread your attention and possess other people, the more this dead body deteriorates. So maybe it's living body time. Also, why are you doing what you're doing, Shadow King? Could you please give us some additional exposition? Well, if there's one thing that the Shadow King can't resist, it's Charles Xavier. And if there are two things he can't resist, it's Charles Xavier and nostalgia. But if there are three things that the Shadow King cannot resist, they are Charles Xavier, nostalgia, and exposition. So he villain-splains his nature and his motives. Thing number one, he can never die as long as a single thought of his remains, which, wow, that's like Wolverine with the one drop of blood remaining deal. Yeah, I was gonna say, he's like psychic Wolverine. Right? Also, he doesn't just like corruption, he feeds on it. It makes him more powerful. The more powerful he is, the more range his powers have, and he also uh, isn't gonna stop where we thought he was going to, as Lian Shen says... Until the whole world is plunged into darkness. And the Shadow King replies, My dear man, how limited, how finite, how human your outlook. Why settle for just the Earth when I can claim the stars? And with this dialogue, Chris Claremont's run on Uncanny X-Men ends. This is the last page he did. Apparently, his plan for the Shadow King claiming the stars was the Shadow King attempting to go through Gateway's dream time, Gateway back in the Outback base that the X-Men and the Reavers both spend time at, to take over the universe. That would have been really cool, I gotta say. 
I like the idea of the Shadow King functionally being Claremont's avatar on this, his last page of, of X-Men, and Claremont basically departing to go fake his own death and go full fucking supervillain and take over the universe. Somewhere in the multiverse, there is a world where that happened. <laughs> right. But this is interesting. I mean, we saw Louise Simonson ending her run on X-Factor with that okay but not that memorable cybernetic samurai arc. We have Chris Claremont ending his run on Uncanny X-Men in the middle of an event that was supposed to set up something bigger that ended up never happening. Claremont will be back for X-Men Volume 2, 1 through 3, but this is it for him on Uncanny. Well, it's worth noting that both of those were unplanned departures. These are folks who didn't really have time to write good swan songs because they didn't know that that's what they were going to be, and... You know, we can't all be Pete and Pete and have an accidentally perfect series finale. <laughs> True. And I mean, it really does show in this storyline just how rushed a lot of things were. But meanwhile, in the story itself, so Wolverine, Gambit, and Jubilee, all of whom have been semi-possessed, I mean, all the X-Men have at this point, they've been defeated, they're hunting in the jungles of Muir Isle. The they're hunting the most dangerous game, Rhinosplosions. <laughs> right? But... Since when does Mirror Isle have jungles? It's like the Scottish Highlands. What the hell? Forget it, Jake. It's X-Men. <laughs> Basically that. And these characters, I mean, it kind of reminds me of in the uh, Skrull arc in space recently. Like, they're evil, but they're also still clearly themselves. Uh, Jubilee's line here is particularly great. Pitstain potpourri. Wolverine. Do you have to be stinking and sweating out here? Right. I mean, that's basically Jubilation Lee. No, that's like fucking Popeye or something. Niseza doesn't quite have these characters' voices down, and it's, it's odd to see him on this because he took over New Mutants pretty seamlessly. And here he feels like he's, ve he feels like he's very deliberately evoking Claremont. Like, they're close. They're close enough to recognize what they're trying to be, but they still come off like slightly off-brand knockoffs. And I think part of that is that he's he's writing what feels like almost Claremont parody here. Like he's he's leaning so heavily on specific tropes and specific, you know, turns of phrase that a lot of the underpinnings of them just just aren't quite there. I guess I can see that. I mean, it works for me, but I'll agree, like, having that writer shift in the middle of an issue, it's a little more noticeable than it would otherwise be. Yeah, he's going to get much better at this over time. This is this is him fairly clearly scrambling, and it's not a great look, but it's it's interesting, and it's interesting that it's such, it's such a palpable shift. One of the things, one of the things I really love about reading a lot of comics and runs over a fairly short period of time is you get to watch folks who are very established creators at this point develop. One of one of my favorite, favorite ways to do that, one of my favorite experiences with that was going back and reading Frank Miller's first run on Daredevil, which is literally, it's his first long-form comics work ever. And you get to basically watch him learn to comics. I mean, he's, he's already very good at what he does, but he, he gets the hang of storytelling. He starts to develop the voice that he later has and is known for in that stuff, and you, you get to see, like, the really formative stages of it, and I feel like this is kind of what we're getting with Nicias as a writer here. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, he's certainly going to end up being one of the definitive X-Men writers, so it's interesting seeing the way he starts here. Yeah. So, after Wolverine wanders off grumbling, he is jumped by Forge, who slaps some weird circuitry stuff on Wolverine's noggin to block out the Shadow King. But Forge doesn't have too long to gloat over the briefly unconscious Wolverine because Rogue jumps Forge, and I love her amazing green outfit. 
with this white cape that kind of straps under her arms and to her belt, these wide green gloves, these unnecessary leg bandage wraps, and of course a kick-ass green headband. I do love the conceit that if you go evil, you have to get a way more extravagant costume. Um, obviously. And then Forge shoots her, which is kind of familiar because he once shot a depowering gun at her that hit Storm, remember that? I do. Now, this looks like the same depowering gun, but it is not, and we are going to get back to that in a little bit. But first, a riot. Because Xavier and Stevie Hunter are half-carrying the uh, D. Peter Nicholas Colossus to Salem Center to get the hell out of there, where they find a bunch of riots going on, which include folks chasing a black kid and yelling, go back to Africa. I mean, once again in this story, it's not just generic hate we're hearing about. Like, this is bigotry and very real-world existing bigotry. And intersectional bigotry. It's not mutants serving as stand-ins for other marginalized groups, which, again, I really appreciate about this arc. I think it's a good move story-wise. I think it sets up the Shadow King not just as a supervillain who does supervillain things, but as somebody who really does tap into the shitty parts of humanity, the parts that you can see in in the worst of the world. Well, and his goal here is specifically just to tap into the shittiness of humanity, not just to specifically take out the X-Men. And that's that's realized pretty well in these sequences. Like, they're genuinely unsettling and they're pretty effective. And the Shadow King uh, shows up telepathically to taunt Xavier and to show him a vision of his fallen, possessed X-Men, and then disappears, and Xavier is furious. The Shadow King prides himself on being the antithesis of my dream. In many ways, claiming responsibility for my very founding of the X-Men. Then let us play the hand he deals us. It is time to find my first students. We need the help of X-Factor. And for me, this was a hell yeah moment. We have Xavier finally back on Earth and finally bringing the teams together. Like, the continuity reset that we're seeing here in some ways, the total uh, plate clearing we're seeing is kind of a shame, but this part is so satisfying. It's the skies of Arcadia moment where all the airships show up. Exactly. Or Final Fantasy IV or Final Fantasy IX. But I love that trope. So that brings us to the third issue and the final one we'll be covering today, X-Factor number 69, Clash Reunion. God damn it. I kind of love that title. So what happens from here? Now, before we talk about what happens in this this issue, remember the thing that way back at the beginning of the episode we said we were we were going to have to address again this episode? I do remember that. Yeah. You remember that one panel of Charles Xavier's really not okay swimsuit area in, in those really ill-fitting pinstriped pants? There it is. Yeah, that is apparently from this issue. I had forgotten completely till I went back to reread it. And the the artist on this issue is Will Sportacio, so it's his goddamn fault. Right? Mr. Portacio, we, we like your art, but but why did you do this thing? Why would you do this thing? This is the last issue of his very short run on X Factor, and I for one say good. <laughs> Any goodwill he built up was just wiped out by that area. Yes. It's just real unacceptable, man. It's it's not not a good choice. I you know, he I'm sure he's a very nice man. He does some very pretty art, but like this broke me. This is not okay. The the writing credit is and I will quote Fabian Nicesa with lots of help. And the inkers are listed as Task Force X. Now If you ever see a bunch of inkers, or even not individual inkers listed, but just a collective name, that's usually a sign that the issue is very, very rushed, because they had to bring in a shit ton of inkers to finish all the pages in time. That definitely shows here. It also usually means that the colorist didn't sleep for at least two days. 
because colorists eat everyone else's tardiness on deadlines. Well, so what's X Factor up to? X Factor is responding to an urgent call from Valerie Cooper. Not only are there mobs in Salem Center, but a mob has risen in D.C. And this narration. Blind, unthinking, uncaring, unrelenting prejudice has gripped the nation's capital. Some would say it has been brewing for decades. Others will swear it happened overnight. In many ways, both claims are accurate. Oh, boy. Now, Niseza has a rough start on the character's dialogue in this issue, but I gotta say, he's got the caption voice down. He does, and even if that one's a little hard to read here in uh, 2017. But we find out that X-Factor has been regrouping at Warren's place in Colorado after dealing with all of the harrowing space adventures in Endgame, after dealing with losing the baby. And when they show up at the beginning of this this issue, we're going to get into the plot, but I want to talk about their outfits briefly because they are dressed in matching double-breasted trench coats with popped collars, and the whole effect is very Devo. And suddenly in the crowd... There's a gunshot and somebody falls. In the middle of this 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 super bigoted protest. And, you know, I feel like this is one of those things where I'm not sure how to discuss it because on one hand, there's a perpetual too soon. But on the other hand, given this last year, it's always going to have been too soon. So, yeah, this might strike home a little bit right now. Seriously. Now, Val Cooper, who's, of course, the, like, director of mutant affairs or some such, thinks that there's a mutant behind it. And she confirms that's why the president personally asked you to be brought in. The president and one other man. And who's that other man? I'll tell you. It is Charles motherfucking Francis Xavier, and he is here to show you the garden spade he has shoved down his ill-fitting pants. Also, Colossus is here. And this scene, I kind of love it, because garden spade and pants aside, this is the first time that Charles Xavier and all of the original five X-Men have been on panel together since Claremont's first issue back in the mid-70s. We've never seen all six of these characters together since then. Yeah, but Xavier's crotch actually ruins it. It ruins the moment. I'm able to see past Xavier's crotch somehow, especially when he refers to them as my X-Men. Even though they're X-Factor, they're still his X-Men, and it warms my goddamn heart. Okay, that's sweet. If I hold my hand over the bottom half of the page, I do okay here. <laughs> just, just block the crotch and everything's gonna be fine. It's really not okay. It's it's the combination of the crotch and the way his pants fit. And look, when I posted this, a lot of you went, oh, no, no, that was the fashion. No, that was never the fashion. Baggier pants with wide legs were, yes, the fashion, but not that fit of pants, which are super tight in the waist and crotch and, like, upper thighs. The point is, actual pants cannot fit actual human bodies in the terrible and upsetting and utterly inappropriate way that Charles Xavier's pants fit him and his weird spade crotch. I mean... Jay, I would certainly describe you as a person with strong feelings about things, but but this is intense even for you. Look, I get that part of the fun of comics is you can draw things that can't be replicated in real life, but on the other hand, if you try to draw fabric seam and stretch lines, I will judge it as fabric. And also, this is a really fucking upsetting panel, Miles. This is not a way that bodies should look. This falls into, like, this weird, uncanny genital valley. Now that is a phrase. That one's going to stick with me. Well, anyway. It's also my new New Wave band. Anyway, back on Muir Island, Rogue comes to having been de-shadow-kinged by Forge's gun. 
Yeah, so this is not the the power racing gun. This is specifically an um, electromagnetic scrambling gun. And his approach to de-shadow kinging has changed somewhat since the last issue. Now, instead of attaching shit to people's faces, he injects them with, I quote, a microscopic neurosynaptic buffer. Because, yeah, sure, why not? That sounds like reasonable scientific bullshit. I'm kind of mad here because Rogue is back in one of her standard 80s costumes, one of the black and green ones. And don't get me wrong, I like those costumes, but I really miss her evil costume from last time. I guess my only no prize explanation for it here is that it was not, in fact, an editorial or artistic error. It's just that once she wasn't evil anymore, she changed out of her evil outfit because she felt bad about it. Maybe she was never actually wearing it to begin with. Maybe she absorbed some of Legion's powers and was creating the illusion of the evil outfit to accurately reflect her evil persona and was actually just wearing her regular clothes under it. Now, this is not the only time she's going to have a random-ass costume switch. She's going to be back in her raggedy Savage Land bikini for no fucking reason soon. Eh, what can you do? So, as Wolverine deduces that either the Shadow King is off-island or doesn't have a human body since there's no Shadow King scent around here, Banshee attacks. And fortunately, they've still got the electromagnetic scrambler handy and the synaptic neutralizer, which I swear has a different name every time they mention it. So they they get Banshee fixed up, and Banshee explains Shadow King's deal. Shadow King is creating a psychometric backlash all over the world, and he's using Polaris— whose new powers somehow include becoming a human catalyst for negative emotions to boost his powers through some kind of reality nexus. And so, to defeat the Shadow King, they might have to kill Polaris. They won't. I gotta say, though, like, I read over this a number of times, and yes, I know this plot point has been set up, but it still does not make any goddamn sense to me. So, like, a weird prehistoric witch lady sorceress who had the same last name kind of as Polaris switched powers with her? She said her, the last half of her name was the same as Polaris's surname. Right, and so then she took Polaris's powers away, and then all of a sudden the Shadow King was just waiting for that moment to say, oh, she doesn't have magnetic powers anymore, so let me make her super strong and buff, and also have her muscles, like, bring out negative emotion in people, and then I'll make sure she gets to where some of my enemy's friends live so that she can start laying the seeds for them to get all evil and sexy, like... Even for a supervillain, that is unnecessarily incoherent and complex. Have you ever heard a small child summarize something they don't entirely understand or perhaps haven't seen all of and also maybe dreamed parts of? I think that's what it is. I think this was a small child's dream, and that small child just, like, told it all in one punctuationless 12-minute sentence, and somebody just wrote it down and said, good enough. It's all a little axe cop, and then Polaris got hit with muscles blood, and... So <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So, okay, this may not be an acceptable explanation, but at least we have an explanation. We have a thing for the heroes to fight against. Speaking of things for the heroes to fight against, in a nearby submarine, Professor X, Colonel Vajan, whose name is spelled like four different ways over the course of this story, um, and the dead and Shadow King occupied husk of Jacob Rees, plus a Shadow King enthralled Val Cooper are collectively trying to make plans while X-Factor heads to the island in sort of a rocket plane. Okay, so Jay, you were mentioning that you weren't sure how the hell Professor Xavier didn't realize that the Shadow King was possessing Jacob Reese, and I have a theory, which is that there are so many goddamn coloring errors with Jacob Reese that he is inconsistent enough that I think Xavier just assumed that there were various extras coming and going in the background, all with different colored beards the whole time. It doesn't make sense, though, because he can't read what's happening on the island because of the psychic defenses built into the submarine, but he still should be able to read minds on the submarine, just not past its hull. Well... Regardless. Uh, so you also mentioned that Colonel Vajan is here, so that was the Russian military leader who is basically hunting the Shadow King and working with Val Cooper. It's kind of nice to see him back, even if he doesn't do very much. 
except it's only sort of Val Cooper because she may or may not be possessed by the Shadow King. And also Colossus is gone again. Yeah, Colossus just disappears. It was such a big deal for him to come back and he just disappears. Like, these issues seem rushed in so many ways. I kind of assume he went back to Soho to brood or something. Probably. He's like, okay, I know I'm not Peter Nicholas anymore. Now I know that that was just a lie, but I'm still going to go grow a ponytail and go paint some things and hang out with pretty ladies. Yeah, speaking of which, whatever happened to, like, beautified Callisto? She just vanished. I don't know. Maybe she is still in Soho. Maybe he just heads back and they spend a couple days, like, sitting in, a, in an attic crying and painting. Maybe. Well, either way... Back on the island, um, X-Factor lands and makes short work of most of the possessed X-Men and other mutants, but they're caught off guard by Legion. And they have a big, impressive fight with almost no backgrounds. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. Like, I'm not saying you can't have action lines as the background for action scenes sometimes, but this is really extreme. And when you, ha- color- when you combine that with confusing coloring, I mean, we see Legion using his pyrokinesis, but the only reason I knew that was some of the dialogue. It just looks like purple, sketchy nothing instead. Purple nothing is the worst kind of nothing. Right? It's my least favorite flavor. So back on the plane, uh, Jacob Reese tries to strangle Professor X to finally strike. Now, Xavier, being rather slow on the uptake, calls to the presumably Shadow King-possessed Val Cooper for help, and Reese mocks him for this until Val turns into Mystique and shoots Reese with a really satisfying shroom sound effect. Right, because back in Uncanny X-Men number 265, uh, we saw Valerie Cooper shoot and kill Mystique. Or rather, we didn't because it was off-panel. And apparently, Mystique has been posing as Val Cooper this whole time, which is awesome. We're going to talk about the details of that and how it happened next episode. But let me just say that it is impressive enough that it almost ended up the cold open for this episode. It's so good. It is such a wonderful hell yeah moment. And uh, when Mystique shoots somebody in the face at point blank range, it tends to be pretty effective. Look, he was already dead. Yeah, well, and and now he's both dead and kind of uh, disintegrated on his upper half. His head definitely catches fire. It's true. And back on the island, Legion goes full Bill Sienkiewicz when Reese is destroyed. It's awesome. He gets all distorted and Sienkiewiczified and it's perfect and I love it. It's a great panel. I used a lot for responses on Twitter. So back on the island, X-Factor shake off Legion's attack since Legion went into weird art mode and make it to Lorna Dane, to Polaris, to the psychic nexus that the Shadow King is using to make all this crap happen. Now, they are about to remove her from the nexus when the formerly possessed X-Men appear to stop them because apparently disconnecting Lorna from the nexus would kill her. And unfortunately, with Jacob Reese gone, the Shadow King needs a new host, and this is the moment he picks, as the X-Men and X-Factor are agonizing over what to do, to possess Legion. And once he's got Legion, he's got Legion's powers. And he uses them immediately to blow everything up. Now, we talked a couple episodes ago, when we talked about Endgame, about those panels where Cyclops just rips off his visor, and the whole page goes red. This is Legion's equivalent. It is, and it is a hell of a cliffhanger. And in fact, it's a cliffhanger that we're going to leave you with, gentle listeners, because like we said, we're splitting the story up into two episodes. So next time, we'll talk about how all of the story stuff resolves. And like we mentioned at the beginning, we're also going to talk about this era, do a little bit of a retrospective before we uh, start to dive into the 90s soon. Meanwhile, though, you've got questions. Scott Bredman asks via email... 
Hey, Jay and Miles. You mentioned a few episodes ago how Cyclops is the only one of the original team who hasn't really had his powers expand in any lasting way. If you were to consider how his powers might further evolve, how do you think they might? Related, might his tactical abilities be a secondary mutation? Okay, Scott, this is actually the one place where I think the dimensional portal explanation of Cyclops' powers has some really cool potential. If you are going to expand Cyclops' powers and you stick with that definition, giving him more control over that portal or control over the dimensions he can access with it would be really, really rad. As far as the tactical abilities, I actually prefer them as a non-mutation for a couple reasons. One of them is that I think they're an interesting character development bit. Another is that some aspects of them, specifically his uncanny visual geometry, could very reasonably be a byproduct of brain damage. And I've talked a lot about X-Men and intersectional diversity. And again, Cyclops is, is a character for whom that makes a lot of sense to have as, as part of his canonical portrayal, given, given his history. Now, I would like to see an alternate reality version of Psyche that focuses on his transmutation ability. I mean, we know he can turn sunlight that he absorbs through his skin into force that comes out of his eyes, right? So why stop there? I say we go full alchemist with Cyclops. He can eat lead and zap gold out of his eyes, or whatever. But he does need to remember the law of equivalent exchange, or else things are going to get real ugly. I mean, Scott, just leave, leave Jean dead, dude. She'll, she'll come back on her own. It's, it's just not worth it. Man, now I'm imagining Summer's Elric brothers, which are like twice as sad as either of them by themselves. But there, there is also, I, I should say, with expanded powers, there is also the Erica Henderson version, where his powers can come not only out of his eyes, but out of his butt. I feel like that's the best answer to this question. Let's leave it at that. Mega Geeks can be cool, asks via Tumblr. Big fan and obsessive binge listener of the podcast here. And my question is, and this is, this is a question that, that's a little bit complicated. I'm not going to read all of it. But it, basically, the question is, what types of Pokemon would the X-Men be and how would we team them up? Now... We decided that we wanted to answer this question, but we should qualify before we go into it that neither of us knows anything at all about Pokemon. Neither of us has played any of the game. I, we watched the first episode by accident in a bootleg like in early in high school at one point. I think so, yeah. We never thought it would catch on. Yeah, I remember having a conversation about how no one was going to watch this. Um, well, actually, I know something about Pokemon. I know that it's, it's about capturing and imprisoning wild creatures and then forcing them to fight and that Pokemon is really fucking upsetting and fundamentally unethical. I've heard it described as a metaphor for colonialism. But nonetheless, because uh, you have a valid question, we're going to do our best to give you a valid answer despite not knowing anything. Also, we figured that while we don't know anything about Pokemon, we know twice as much as is reasonable to be expected for people to know about X-Men, so we'll just assume that it transfers. Okay, so what do we start with? Well, um, let's see. So, so they're all types, right? Uh, yeah, you know, you have sort of different almost elemental types. Yeah, yeah, we've got, there, there were some suggestions in the original question, but I feel like it, this is, it would be appropriate for us to run with this rather than, and, and just treat those as, as, as examples. So, I mean, I think, I'm, I'm going to start with Cable just because he's been on my mind. He's a recently introduced character, and Cable is a retcon type. And also, I think he is sometimes a muscles and yelling type, which is a combined type. It's muscles and yelling. He's not a muscles type and yelling type. He's a muscles and yelling type and also a retcon type. Now, Boom Boom is dual type. She is bubblegum type and also boy crazy type. Adam X the Extreme is extreme type, which means that he explodes literally all the time on a skateboard in space. I'm not entirely sure that's how Pokemon works, but it probably should be. Let's just go with it. No, it's definitely how Pokemon works. Uh, what about Professor Xavier? Um, I, I think pro that clearly Professor Xavier is a jerk type. Shadowcat is a subtext type Pokemutant, but she's weak against Peter types. Ooh, ooh, Sunspot is a Thomas Magnum type, and he is weak against Mustache Envy. 
Colossus is a conflicted type. He's strong against tractor types. Except in one future where he's a mustache type. Hmm. And, oh, Arch Archangel is a swooping type. I guess Nature Girl would be grass type. I think that's a thing. Ooh, ooh, so would High Evolutionary. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah. Wolverine, Maritime Lawyer type. Jonathan, however, is a Wolverine type and also an actual Wolverine. And Gambit and Rogue are both accent types. Um, those of you who would like to expand on this, let's do an art challenge this week. We haven't done one of those in freaking forever. Yes, uh, X-Men as their equivalent Pokemon, or just as their own Pokemon. I want to see your new types of Pokemon. I want to see your, like, complex universe rules for, like, accent types versus retcon types and stuff. I want to see people try to make sense out of the mountain of gibberish we've just unleashed. <laughs> I don't know if that's possible, but good luck. Look, dude, if we can do it with the X-Men, they can do it with this. <laughs> right. So we're a, an entirely listener-supported podcast, and uh, supporting us at certain levels comes with on-air acknowledgments from a variety of fictional characters and concepts. So, of course, we have to turn this to the angry Claremontian narrator, just as Claremont leaves. Ah, Stephanie Burt. Did you imagine that in your absence, your pupils would continue on as they always had, waiting for your sagacious guidance? How bittersweet it is, then, to return and see them busting through walls like some kind of superpowered Kool-Aid men. And under the leadership of no less than your arch-nemesis, Craig Seabloom. And, um, I believe I am passing the torch to, uh... Oh, God. Really, Miles? Really? Are we doing this? Really? Uh, so, yeah, I, I guess give it up for Sexy Gambit. Gambit don't know what all the fuss is about the Shadow King's control in your aisle. All of the homes they fees be evil and sexy, true, but that not so bad, no? Adam Highfield's new X-Men costumes hug the hips so well, the better to flaunt what you got. And Pam Fowler's arena blood sport may be uncle harsh, but nothing gets the blood pumping like sweaty, full-contact sensuality. Monsieur Shadow King... Maybe Gambit like your style. Well, that was somewhat upsetting. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show's totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free and keep having me thank people as Sexy Gambit, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. I should note that you can also get him to thank people as characters other than Sexy Gambit and thus possibly decrease the amount of Sexy Gambit on the show, which is also a valid option. That said, next week, the Muir Island Saga concludes... And with it, an era. <laughs>